This is God's word. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. Infants will play near the hole of the cobra. Young children will put their hands into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The word of the Lord. charge 
of painting the carriages and buggies that the horses pulled at the time. And he was a natural. He was really good at it. People loved the artistic flair that he would put into painting these coaches and carriages. And once he got older, he opened his own carriage and sign painting shop. And customers would come all from all over the place to get uh, his beautifully painted works. But this was quickly met with stern opposition from his oppressively plain Quaker community. They actually censored and condemned his work as luxurious and vain and unchristian. And soon, Hicks actually had to close up shop and uh, start life over as a farmer. However, he still painted on the side, and he made some masterpieces that are still treasured and valued today. Uh, and the subject of almost all of his paintings was the scene that we just read today from Isaiah 11. And we actually have an image of it up here. It's kind of hard to see with the teal background, uh, but we can have a video of some of uh, what he was painting. Uh, he titled them all The Peaceable Kingdom. And he painted 62 different versions of this painting. And there are several differences between each of the different versions, and art critics and historians uh, drive themselves crazy trying to decipher what the small little differences might mean. Uh, but all of them look pretty similar to the one that we have up here on the screen. All of them depict a child surrounded by these animals wide open eyes staring out from the camera as if their eyes have just been opened and they can't believe what they see. And not only is Hicks' art relevant to the passage that we read today, but actually I thought his life was pretty relevant to our Advent season. Uh, it turns, serves as a great example of the kind of contrast that we see during the season of Advent. Because Advent is all about recognizing the beauty that shows up in the plainness like Hicks' art in his rigid culture. Advent's all about looking for the light that shines in the darkness. It's about looking for the burst of color in a fog of monotone gray. Advent positions us to look ahead to Christ's arrival, the divine encounter of the human on Christmas Day, announcing hope in our world of hopelessness. In the passage we read today, we see a message of hope coming to the people of Israel at a time when they felt particularly uh, imagine, if you will, for a moment, uh, that you were an Israelite. You know, they are looking around at what's going on uh, in their present situation, and all the signs are pointing to their eventual, complete destruction. After decades of infighting that had gone on between the twelve tribes, there was an eventual split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And now, after all of this infighting, both kingdoms find themselves weaker, and more isolated than ever. And while all of this is happening within Israel in the region of Palestine, uh, to the east, there was a new superpower that was growing in strength in the region, and the writing was on the wall for Israel. Assyria was steamrolling over every other nation in the region, and it was only a matter of time until they turned their military power towards God's people. And they knew what was coming. There would be a bloody battle where thousands would be killed, and then eventual defeat, leaving God's people nothing more than a chopped down stone. Talk about hopeless. And in order to make things even worse for them, uh, a lot of them were thinking back to a time when none of this would have worried or bothered them at all. Because there was a time when Israel was the superpower, powerhouse in the region. Now, under King David and King Solomon, Israel, they were on the up and up. Now, their economy was booming. 
Their military seemed unbeatable, and trade partners would come from all over the world to give them gifts and try to curry their favor because they were the ones who had power and influence. But now they are forced to come to grips with the reality that they are not the nation that they used to be. They are no longer the powerhouse in the region. And, Israel, and Isaiah uses this image of a stump to describe Israel. And I think that's perfect. Because a stump is the only thing left of a mighty tree after it's been chopped down. It's a sign that there had once been life there, and that things had grown, and maybe even birds and animals had taken shelter in this tree. But not anymore. A stump is a reminder of something great that once was, but has since been cut down. It's a bitter sign of unrealized hope. It reminds me of the Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days. The, the song describes three people sitting at the local bar, reminiscing on how life used to be before they hit their death. It talks about a former high school baseball star who was brimming with potential, but now he sits at this bar thinking back on what might have been, dreaming of the past. There's a divorced mother sitting there who used to turn heads as she walked by and had all the guys chasing after her, but now she drinks alone, caught between laughing and crying. There's a former assembly line worker who can't get a job anymore due to his age. But he sits there drinking his glass as he remembers the pride that he used to feel when he was working at the Ford plant. Glory days, they'll pass you by. And I wonder if you were sitting at the bar at this glory days tavern, what would your story be? Maybe you peaked in college or something like that. Maybe your body and your face don't look the way that they used to. Uh, maybe you didn't live up to the potential that others saw in you. Maybe you lost touch with friends or family. All of us, I think, have these bitter memories of a time when things used to be better than they are right now. And sometimes when we're caught reminiscing on the glory days of the past, the last thing we want to do is look ahead to the future. But that's where Isaiah is calling these people. He's pointing them to a day that's even better than what they have right now. He paints this incredibly vivid mental picture of a future world where life springs up from swatting stumps. He gives us this vision of a ruler who will come and bring justice and righteousness to the whole world. And, and in this new world, suddenly lions and wolves go vegan. And uh, the children, they can play peekaboo with, with vipers and cobras. It's this complete reversal of the curse of sin that we read about in Genesis. Uh, you know, there's this, this part after Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, uh, that God curses the serpent, and he says to him, you know, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. But in Isaiah's vision, we don't see enmity or striking crushing or anything like that. We see a child playfully having fun with cobras and vipers, with serpents. We see all of the deadly and dead-end effects of sin being put into reverse. We get this beautiful image of what God promised will one day be a reality for all of us. But as beautiful and promising as Isaiah's vision might be, I can't help but think some people probably have a hard time taking it to heart. Because if you're really going to believe 
in Isaiah's message. If you're really going to believe in God's promise that one day all things will be made right, that means that you have to hope. And hope is hard. Oh, yeah, was, man, I lost another. That's all right. <clears throat> but hope is hard. And it's back. <laughs> hope for it. And now, and it's gone. <laughs> I don't want it coming in or out. So we're just going to stick with this one right now. Think that's a good call? Yeah. Cool. All right. Here we go. I have to. Part is building up. <laughs> hope means risk. When we when we hope for something, we are making ourselves vulnerable to disappointment. Hope means putting your heart into something without a guarantee that it's going to go the way that you want it to go. Hope means letting go of control, like letting go of control of this thing. Whatever little bit of control you might think that you have. Every time you hope, you are risking your pride and opening yourself up to being hurt. Because if things don't go the way that you want, you can end up feeling like a fool. Just ask any Sacramento Kings fan about their hopes these past, was it 14 years? And here we are, so, you know, 14 years of hoping and 14 years of tens of thousands of disappointed fans saying, maybe next year. That hurts. And that's what hope can do to us. Or think about what it's like to fall in love or develop a crush. You know, you hope that this person feels the same way back. You hope that they might even be the one. You know, and this is an exciting feeling, uh, but it's also an incredibly risky and vulnerable place to be. You know, you might hope that they have the same feelings for you, and so you might buy them chocolates and a teddy bear on Valentine's Day, only to get a note in your locker that she just wants to be friends. Not that this ever happened to me in middle school. Uh, don't act like your middle school romances were all thrown in with Juliet. You guys have had this happen too. Uh, maybe you came in here today with some hope. Maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian, but you came in here today hoping to find something real. And that's a big risk, too. Because maybe your friends and family think that religion is a joke. And by coming in here and sitting in these seats, you might be risking your reputation. All for the hope of finding something real. You can't have hope without some sort of risk. And that's where we find ourselves during this Advent season. We find ourselves hoping, hoping for light to shine in the darkness, hoping for peace to come in the midst of unrest, hoping for an answer to prayers, like how long are things going to be like this, Lord? And when we hope, we risk our pride, and we become vulnerable as we do it. But we're not the first ones, though. In fact, you could argue that the whole Bible is just a story, one big, long story of people who chose to put their hope in God's promises. At the very beginning, early on, we see Abraham and Sarah uh, receiving this promise from God that they would have a child, and that child would go on to have more children, and they would eventually be the mother and father of a great nation. This was their promise. But as they got older and older, the odds of this happening seemed less and less likely. Things were really starting to look hopeless. That is, until God answered his promise, and gave them a son, Isaac. You know, we read about Moses and the Israelites hoping to start a new life 
in this promised land that God had told them about. But on their way out of Egypt, they get caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army in this situation that looks completely hopeless. But what seemed like a hopeless situation actually ended up becoming the stage for God's glory as he parted the Red Sea and led them through on dry ground, out of slavery, into freedom, towards the land that he promised them. In this Christmas season, we think about Joseph and Mary and the hope that they have as they travel to Bethlehem. They received a promise from God that Mary was going to give birth to a son, even though she was a virgin, and that this child would be the son of God, who would be the salvation of all humanity. And that they were supposed to name him Yeshua, Jesus, which literally means salvation. Things looked pretty hopeless for a minute when Mary had gone into labor and they couldn't find a place to stay for the night. But God's son was born that night in a stable, and hope came into the world. And then, long after that, well, not that long after that, uh, at the very center of the Bible, at the climax, we see Jesus, grown up, the Son of God, making promises as well. Promising that the kingdom of heaven was near, in fact, that it was already starting to take shape in the world. You know, we, we see Jesus making these promises of a kingdom where the lame could walk, where the blind could see, where the hungry would be fed, where the poor will be raised up, where all things will be made right. And so many people put their hope in him. And his 12 disciples, they hoped that he would be the one that could give them a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. There were thousands of Israelites that hoped that he was the Messiah that God had promised, and they hoped that he would overthrow the Roman occupation that had held them uh, under its weight for so long. They hoped that he would be the one to do this. And return them, the, the nation of Israel, into this powerful you know, nation like they used to be in their glory days. That was their hope of what Jesus would do. But then Jesus was brought before a sham trial. He was led out to a cross and he was executed. And what had seemed so hopeful came to a disappointing end at the stump of a cross. A reminder of something great that once was, but has since been cut down. A bitter sign of unrealized hope. That is, until a shoot came up from the stump. And life grew out of something that used to be a symbol of death and unfulfilled hope. Three days after Jesus was put in a tomb, he rose and brought real hope to a world that was in desperate need of it. Hope that even death could be put in reverse and that life and love will win out. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise that we are waiting for in this Advent time until Christ comes again. That's where we put our hope. That death can even be put in reverse, and life and love will win out, and all people will live in God's kingdom in a world where things are the way they're supposed to be, where lions and lambs can dwell together, where wolves and cattle can be friends, where children can play with deadly serpents without fear of harm. That's where we put our hope. And if you're going to risk putting your hope into anything, let it be this promise. Let's pray. Our God of hope, you have made promises to your people in the past, and you have always come through. But so often we find ourselves afraid to hope. 
afraid to become vulnerable and risk being disappointed. Open our eyes to see your light already shining in the darkness. Help us to put our pride to the side and put our hope in you. Meet us in our vulnerability and teach us how to risk hope. Teach us how to risk stepping out of our comfort zone and sharing this hope with our community. Amen.